1979, more than 500 students attended Martin Luther King Jr. Elementary School, located in a tree-lined enclave of Ann Arbor, Michigan. That year, 11 of those students and their families found themselves fed up with falling behind in reading and writing. Each of those 11 students were black, and their parents felt that they weren't being adequately taught English in school. So they filed a lawsuit on behalf of all 11 children. Michael, Anthony, Gerard, two Tyrones, Dwayne, Keely, Tito, Carolyn, Jacqueline, and Gary. The suit claimed that these 11 children deserved appropriate teaching so that they could learn standard English. You see, those children, like much of the nation's black population then and now, spoke African-American vernacular English, or AAVE. And AAVE has different rules than the standard or academic English primarily taught in schools. The suit essentially said that teachers need to account for these different rules when they teach children who speak AAVE at home academic English. If you're like me at this point in the story, maybe you thought, well, good for these parents sticking up for their children and being ahead of their time and raising these points. It's too bad some racist judge is going to rule against them. But that's not what happened. The judge actually ruled in the parents' favor and teachers at the school underwent specialized training to learn how to better serve black children. And remember, this was in 1979. The decision sent shockwaves across the country. It introduced the idea of AAVE as its own rule-governed language to the masses, something academics had been trying to do for years. It was a promising moment, but one that would be all too fleeting. After one year, the judge was convinced that the school had done enough to remedy the problem. The training stopped, and the handful of those 11 children who remained at King were left to deal with the consequences. I can remember back then, after um, it was over, we heard nothing else about it. We just went back to normal life, you know, had to deal with the stress. That's Kahili Brennan one of those 11 students, talking about the experience in 2016. I can remember being teased after a while. Um, I can remember going to one of the Martin Luther King ceremonies <laughs> and thinking like, what's going on here? Because you sending me to the corner, Martin Luther King is black and we got a big cake, but mm -hmm. all the black people were standing in the corner and we didn't even get a piece of cake. You know, that, you know it, it was so weird to me. Like I said, kids shouldn't have to go through things like that. You know, so it was hard for us to endure. It's hard for us to ingest. As promising as the recognition of AAVE by the courts was, it was addressed with the bare minimum resources and the idea faded away. More than 40 years later though, the value in recognizing AAVE in the classroom is still there. We just have to open our eyes to it. Race doesn't limit you from anything. It's all about I feel like they learn about race from, I'll, I teach them. You can inspire about who you are with somebody else that looks like you. And love who you are. love racial identity. This is In My Skin, a podcast about race and childhood. I'm Adam Flango. This is the third part of a series on bias. 
If you missed the first two episodes on examining the roots of bias and how bias plays out in punishments in schools, make sure to go back and listen. On this episode, we're looking at bias as it relates to language, and specifically AAVE. We'll look at what AAVE is, how it is taught in schools, and why incorporating it into the classroom is so important. But first, we need to look at what AAVE is, and what it isn't. This is the first time you're hearing the term African American Vernacular English, it's likely not the first time you've heard of it. It's been called many things over the years, from Black English to African American language to Ebonics. Its definition, regardless of the preferred term though, is pretty much the same. It is simply a rule-governed language variety, or simply language, that many Black people in the United States speak. What it isn't is poor grammar or slang or a sign of being uneducated. It has its own set of rules that are every bit as clear and intricate as the academic English primarily used in the United States school system. They're just different. When I think about examples of AAVE, there's a brief, frankly inconsequential moment that comes to mind that illustrates one of its rules and how it is slightly but meaningfully different than academic English. It's an exchange between two characters in the movie Love and Basketball. The scene happens quickly, and even if you're a fan of the movie, it may not stick in your head. Here's what happens. Quincy McCall, played by Omar Epps, is a star high school basketball player whose mother, played by Debbie Morgan, is lecturing him about not moving too fast with girls. What happens in their ensuing dialogue is, to me, a kind of AAVE audio Rorschach test. What you hear says something about your perception of language. So what we're listening for in this next clip is what Quincy says back to his mother. Here's the clip. Not playing with you. Now I'm telling you, these girls are looking to get you caught. They see you and they see dollar signs. No. Are you hearing me? I'm hearing you. No, are you hearing me? I've been hearing you, Mike. I'll play it one more time, focusing just on his sentence. Listen closely to the exact phrasing. I've been hearing you, Mike. Now, what did you hear him say? You can write it out if you want, or say it out loud to yourself. So, did you hear him say, I've been hearing you, ma? As in, I have been hearing you, ma? Or, did you hear, I've been hearing you, ma? Without the apostrophe V-E after the I. While it might seem like the difference between the two is small, it's not. They have fundamentally different meanings because they follow fundamentally different rules. I have been hearing you would qualify as standard or academic English. In this context, it would mean that Quincy has been hearing his mother during this specific conversation. But when you hear it as I've been hearing you, ma, which if you are looking for a right answer is what he actually says, the meaning is different and richer. The phrasing makes use of the habitual be one of the most common components of AAVE. In this context, with the habitual B, Quincy is not just hearing his mother during this one-on-one -on -one conversation. No, using I've been hearing you signifies that he has heard her over the many, many times they have had this same conversation. They always seem to be having this kind of conversation, which is why the habitual B is correctly used. So now that we know just a little bit about how AAVE works. The bigger question is, how would it actually be incorporated into the classroom? 
That after the break. In My Skin is a production of the PRIDE program, which stands for Positive Racial Identity Development in Early Education. PRIDE is part of the University of Pittsburgh Office of Child Development. Thank you to the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and Hillman Family Foundations for making this episode possible. When I first started researching AAVE, its importance became pretty immediately clear. What was far less clear to me, though, was how this could possibly be used in schools. That was until I saw a clip of a teacher in Los Angeles named Daniel Russell. Using a Jeopardy-style game, Russell put a phrase in AAVE on the board, read it out loud, and groups of students worked together to translate it into academic, or as they term it, mainstream English. My grandpa cooked dinner every night. Her person's singular. Cook. My grandpa cooks dinner every night. Which linguistic feature is not in mainstream American English? Third person singular. Yes. And Marisol, how do you code switch this into mainstream American English? My grandpa cooks dinner every night. You just got 500 more points. (laughs) He's funny. He is funny. Okay, Ariel Baron, what's the answer? He is funny. He is funny? Excellent translation. Here we go. We don't have nothing to do. Okay, quiet please. We don't have nothing to do. Oh, I'm sorry. That is not... I'll wait. That is not an accurate translation in mainstream American English. So you're at minus. Oh, so let me roll. Let's see which team will have an opportunity to get it. I might roll you guys again. One. We don't have anything to do. Excellent translation. That clip may be from 1995, but it really illustrates how incorporating AAVE into teaching just makes sense. And the thoughtfulness is evident in seeing the language that Russell uses. I reached out to him recently to learn more about his approach back then. So all kinds of validating and affirming things about language were posted in the room. And there was constant validating and affirming of language, you know, uh, through my actions and our assignments. So like, moving away from um, subtractive or, or or corrective vocabulary such as proper and improper um, and correct and incorrect or grammatical and ungrammatical. Um, that was a big part of the experience. Um, for my Latinx students, you know, who it was, they clearly identified themselves as bilingual. Um, it was, I used the approach to empower my African-American students who are speakers of African-American language or AAVE to feel empowered that they were also bilingual. It just was a bilingualism that hadn't been addressed <laughs> um, uh, uh, systemically, <laughs> but that we, because we were part of this program, were. Russell's connection to home language is personal. His mother is Korean, his father is white, and Russell's first language was actually Korean. But after being told that speaking Korean at home was hurting her child's development, Russell's mother stopped speaking Korean entirely. 
And so within a year, I no longer spoke Korean anymore. And my mom, because my mom chose assimilationist path, path, because she didn't, you know, she didn't know better. She she wanted her children to be successful. So I lost my connection to my mother's tongue. And um, so I grew up not speaking Korean. And I only spoke English, and 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 um, that was always a missing aspect to my cultural identity. And so coming in, you know, coming into education and working with children who have linguistic differences, um, that un I guess I carried with me that understanding and that sense of loss of part of my identity. And so maybe that also then influenced my receptivity to what was being shared with me about, um, you know, linguistic differences. Now, California is no stranger to language programs. Just Google Oakland and AAVE if you are unfamiliar. Unfortunately, though, LA's Academic English Mastery Program is another case of unfulfilled promise. Russell has since left the school, but he and his family still live in the LA Unified School District. And he has seen the district struggle to build on the work he was doing decades ago. So within the district, even though a program existed to address these, um, outside of those schools that were participating, um, there wasn't, there wasn't much knowledge. And, and here we are 20 some years later and my children go to, you know, LA Unified schools and my wife works for LA Unified and there's not been much progress. Right. Um, in fact, I would say in some ways we were far ahead back then, <laughs> um, than it is now. My last school context that I worked for, uh, uh was a charter school organization and they had no knowledge of this topic and i introduced the topic to them rather than keep banging his head against a wall as change moved at a glacial pace he started to do something more about it he's now pursuing a phd in organizational change and management in order to understand why things don't change In order to find out more about this whole idea of change and what it might look like, I sat down with another person whose ties to language are deeply personal. So I'm um, Chelsea Jimenez. Uh, my bachelor's is in early childhood education with a focus in um, urban education, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Pittsburgh in the urban education program. Jimenez is researching how including a student's home language and culture affects their academic success. And she has come to be interested in the topic after reckoning with her own childhood experiences with language. Her parents are both multilingual. In addition to English, her Dominican father speaks Spanish and her Jamaican mother speaks Patois. But each parent had different perspectives on language. Most times it was just like butting heads. So my mom, she's a very proud Jamaican woman who speaks Patois, and she'd always tell me, like, you can speak whatever you want to. You should know Patois, you should know Spanish, and you should know English because some people, like, they don't have access to knowing all these languages or being involved in so many cultures. Like, you should you should be grateful to have, to have this kind of um, knowledge and culture and space, so you should take advantage of it. So she emphasized learning standardized English because... Uh, she worked so hard to get to this country. You have access to the space, capitalize on it. But she never wanted me to lose my culture. Like, you never wanted to lose being Jamaican or that background. So she emphasized speaking both. Um, however, my father, he took on a very um, 
very a very different view. He emphasized learning English only. He didn't teach me or my brother Spanish at all. So I had no interaction with his language or his culture in many ways. And so it was a bit confusing to find out that, okay, something that I am speaking is legitimized AAVE, which my parents don't really speak that, to be honest. So this is a whole nother language that I'm trying to figure out on my own while still trying to learn theirs. And they had very different views about what they thought was needed for success and for safety and comfort in America. So I found that very interesting, and I think a lot of that is just rooted in assimilating into spaces where the standard is might be white. Bias in language shows up in many different ways. There's the way a teacher corrects a student by saying that something is incorrect versus that it is not the proper translation into academic English, like Daniel Russell did. There's the absence of books or materials written in AAVE in a child's classroom, which implicitly denies the validity of the language children may speak at home. Then there are the more overt signs of bias, which Jimenez experienced as a child after moving to South Carolina. I remember the first day of class, um, the teacher kept asking me to repeat stuff. And she kept saying stuff about how my last name seemed so foreign. And I've always been, I've always spoken English, but I've, I know how to speak Patois. I know some forms of, of Spanish, but I was always pretty much a, um, a standardized English speaker. But the whole day she kept, my, my new teacher, my new fourth grade teacher when I moved in 2004 to South Carolina kept correcting me or like asking me to repeat stuff. And she kept saying stuff about your last name is so foreign and, and ethnic. She kept saying these things. And by the second day of class, I was at ESOL. Um, so English for speakers of other languages, even though English is my first language. Um, they did not test me to place me into um, ESOL. They didn't ask me about my language backgrounds. I don't even know. My father to this day says that they just probably saw my last name and placed me, um, but he doesn't know how she kept correcting me all day. Later, um, it turned out that they did mark that I was a native speaker of another language, and I don't know what they thought I spoke, um, because even with being able to speak Patois, that wasn't what I spoke in schools. I knew that no one else spoke it, so I didn't. So that fourth grade year is really when I started to clue in, like, okay, language is a is is something that's extremely powerful, and I'm being limited in having access to classroom time because I'm being pulled out to have intervention on my language, which I thought I spoke the same language as everyone else. And so I started to think about it then, but I wasn't critical in the way that I was thinking, okay, well, why is this language stigmatized? Why is it stigmatized if it's Patois but not, let's say, English? I just knew that language was a barrier at that point for me to be so young and to be pulled out on a daily basis to work on something which I thought was adequate. Throughout her childhood, Jimenez wrestled with appreciating her home languages. It wasn't until a course called Linguistic Pluralism at the University of South Carolina where her attitudes began to change. Um, so my professors kind of, they emphasize the idea that people who do either code switch or translate or however you'd like to um, describe it are bilingual or multilingual. And so I started, once I realized that what I was speaking was an actual language, it it was very empowering in many ways because I lived most of my life thinking that I was speaking incorrectly and that I just needed to learn the correct way to speak in order to maneuver in these spaces when in reality it's just there's a rule-governed language that I'm speaking that's been stigmatized. And so it was it was a bit eye-opening, but once I did get this idea that it is a language, I did feel almost like I was multilingual. I, I considered it in a way that I have access to spaces who people... 
I have access to spaces that people who do not speak this language would would have. So someone who just speaks standardized English, they may not be able to carry on a conversation with someone who speaks AAVE for the simple fact that they just it doesn't it doesn't translate over. Some of it you do have to code switch, but because I'm able to speak both standardized English and um, African American vernacular English, I felt like I was more I was open to more spaces. I felt empowered, whereas many people wouldn't see it as a legitimate language and would not consider me by like multilingual. But I, I really enjoyed learning about it and making a connection for myself because it did help me find some kind of um, peace in knowing that what I'm speaking is not just incorrect, but it's it's something that I've I've grew, grown up learning. But also there there's some le- legitimacy to it. Jimenez took her new outlook into the classroom, teaching children by validating and affirming their home languages. There was one day I asked my students, we just had learned about the habitual B, and I told them, today I want to make sure that y'all know we're writing in AAVE, we're not writing in standardized English. And so they said, okay, so what are we going to be talking about? And they were, they were so eager once they found out that it was their home language that we were going to be writing in. And I said, today I want you to tell me about something that you always do. But if it's in um, AAVE, then it's something that you be doing. And so they were so excited. And I remember I asked them, I said, I just want you to write about two or three sentences and just show me how you would use the habitual be in just regular conversation or sentences that you might say. And I had one student. I, again, I asked for two to three sentences, but this student probably wrote about 15 sentences, and she drew pictures too. Um, she was very invested in doing it. She did way more work than what I asked for because she she was affirmed and she she knew she was doing well at it and I think there's this this notion if you feel successful or comfortable in what you're doing you're more likely to engage and so her 15 sentences she was going on and on she said um I be hugging my mama I be watching tv I be eating breakfast with my dad I be going to the playground I be going to school and I asked her I said so do you, do you just go to the playground on the weekend? She said, no, I'd be going to the playground, playground all the time. And so she understood that this idea of using the word be is a habitual thing and something that she's regularly engaging in. And she was able to give way more sentences because she felt comfortable in, in that space of maneuvering that language. Now she's building on that experience and knowledge and continuing to promote the idea of valuing a child's home language the very thing she didn't know she was looking for as a child. But I love language. It's very powerful. And I just find it ironic. Like, uh, my dad kind of did not emphasize language or at least home language as something that was useful or required for success. And for me to go into this notion that we need home languages, we need native languages, and this is required for success, I think it's... um, it's a little pushback. He was a little surprised. I know he's proud of me making it so far to a PhD, but I just think it's very interesting that I'm researching the exact thing that he his morals and values were against, being that he had a, an American-born child here. But I think that's why I want to get into this work, to make sure that, one, we question what languages are legitimized, but also that parents and students know their rights as far as what you have access to or what you're subjected to within schools, especially based on language. On the next episode of In My Skin, we close our four-part series on implicit bias by looking at one innovative researcher's findings about how we might actually combat these ingrained beliefs. 
In My Skin is produced by and written by me, Adam Flanga, with help from Pride Director Aisha White, Pride Director of Engagement Medina Jackson, Pride Administrative Assistant Katie Carney, and Office of Child Development Director Shannon Wanless. Music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Michigan State University, Professor Maribel Santiago, and her students for their oral history of the King vs. Ann Arbor court decision. You can find out more about the case at annarbordecision.leadr.msu.edu.